When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Anna Georgescu, and welcome to the New Books in Science podcast. Today's guest is Jackie Higgins, author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, published in the United States by Atria Books at the end of February. The book is a wonderful incursion into the world of animal perception, an exploration of evolutionary heritage, and an opportunity to better understand and appreciate our own senses. Jackie Higgins is a graduate of Oxford University in zoology and has worked for Oxford Scientific Films for over a decade, along with National Geographic, PBS Nova, and the Discovery Channel. She has also written, directed, and produced films at the BBC Science Department. She lives in London, which is where she is joining us from today. Jackie, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me, Anna. Delighted to be here. Oh, absolutely delighted to talk to you. So tell me a little bit about how your background informed the writing process and where did the idea come from? Um, so, um, so as you alluded to in your introduction of me, I work for a company called Oxford Scientific Films, and they, they were experts in revealing unseen and unknown worlds. So they had all sorts of strange uh, camera gadgets, like macro lenses, that and they opened up small worlds like phytoplankton and plankton, zooplankton, to our eye. Or they played with time, so they opened up kind of time worlds that we can't normally see, you know, filming plants and time lapse and suddenly seeing them kind of uh, burst into life or or filming um, the seasons through lock shots. Um, so even so, I, I remember making a um, a program for BBC Natural World about seed dispersal and looking at fruits um, with UV light and realizing that these fruits were advertising in ways that our eye generally can't see. Um, I remember filming rattlesnakes in the Sonora Desert for a National Geographic special that we made, and we filmed. Um, grasshopper mice with a thermal camera to kind of uh, get some idea about what these rattlesnakes were perceiving, how they perceive these warm-blooded prey in the dark. So I think I think a lot of my wildlife filmmaking experience was already, uh, through that, I was becoming interested in the senses. Um, and my interest when I studied zoology was always 
um, um, was kind of narcissistic. It was the human animal and using other animals to uh, better understand ourselves. Um, so it kind of evolved. Yes, it did. It did kind of come out of the, the things that I had been doing in my in, uh, in my career. So, what is the sense in the context of this book? Um, so it's a deceptively tricky question. Um, I mean, the first loose uh, meaning of people often use the word sense when they're talking about sense of humor or sense of art and poetry or sense of justice and guilt. So it's definitely not, I do not mean sense in that sense. I mean, sense is so liberally used, but I use it instead as the ability to extract information from the physical world. So we are, our bodies and animal bodies are, and plant bodies are full of these sensors that enable us to gauge what's going on outside in the world. Um, but even that is, is there's no actual consensus on a specific definition because some might argue or define a sense by its sensor. So um, sight, for example, then fragments into two senses because in our eye we have rods which enable us to see light, uh, very low light levels. So it's the, it's the um, sensor that you're using at night. And um, then we also have cones, another type of sensor. We have three different kinds of cones that kind of communicate with one another and enable us to see rainbows, enable us to see color. So you could say that um, you could say that a sense is defined by a sensor, and I do do that in the book. But also, I kind of I interrogate it because then what then of, of taste? We have four, maybe five different senses. So we've got on our tongue, we have bitter sweet, salty, sour senses, and some would also argue umami senses, a, a meat that, that enable us to kind of taste a meaty tastes. Um, but then perhaps, but it'd be very odd to kind of divide taste up that way. So then, you know, the sense is defined by one's perception. Um, but then to complicate that, what then a flavor? Because flavor, actually what we think of as flavor is not quite taste. And it's it involves our sense of smell. Um, in fact, flavour is majority smell, as um, anyone who got a good dose of COVID knows. Um, so, so, um, so it's a kind of it's a deceptively tricky, a, a, a deceptively tricky question. Um, but what we do know is that Aristotle, when he said we all had five senses, and these senses we've learnt to parrot from nursery. Um, just didn't know the whole picture. I hate to say he got it wrong because he couldn't have known. Um, but the senses that we know have fragmented and there are many senses that were working beneath his and our consciousness that we use all the time. So nowadays, scientists would say we might have upwards of 22 and some even say we have as many as 33 different senses, each served by a dedicated sensor. That was a long answer to what seemed like a very simple question. No, no, absolutely not. And I think your answer touches on the fact that all of these are so interconnected and it's more of a holistic picture on how we experience reality. But your book is structured into 12 chapters and even just reading the chapter titles um, give me the impression that I don't know half of all of these senses. I don't know how we experience them. I didn't know they were considered senses. Um, so walk me a little bit through your pairings and the way the book evolves. Yes. Well, I mean, it's um, it changed all the time, but I will, um, I can tell you, I'll be, I had the peacock mantis shrimp um, who basically investigates how we see rainbows, how we see color. Um, the spookfish, which is this deep sea 
bathypelagic, strange-looking fish um, that when scientists first fished it out the deep, looked like it had four eyes, and vertebrates with four eyes do not exist. Anyway, I use this creature to investigate how we see in the dark. Um, the great grey owl, um, this incredibly majestic, immense uh, raptor, um, does these spectacular snow plunges, um, and it um, essentially is using sound to locate the little mouse beneath a big mound of snow. Um, so I used um, its extraordinary sense of hearing to investigate our sense of hearing. Um, I used the star-nosed mole, which is this um, rather curious-looking creature, which um, actually ended up in the Guinness Book of Records for being the fastest predator. Uh, so the, knocking the cheetah off the block, it can identify, capture and devour its prey, little worms, um, in half the time it takes us to blink. So um, anyway, it's got the most, this, this star on the end of its nose is the most touchy-feely mammalian ap appendage known. So I use it to investigate how we feel the world with our fingertips. Um, then the common vampire bat I use to investigate. I flip, I essentially divide uh, touch into two senses. Um, back to that question you are that gnarly question you asked earlier about how you define a sense. I mean, our fingers contain very many mechanosensors, the way we um, extracting information from the world about how the world how the topography of the world is structured, how we can feel the difference between a smooth ball bearing and a corrugated walnut. And very many sensors enable us to do that. But then there are other sensors within our skin um, that essentially um, prime us to uh, the touch of another, um, another's caress or a pinch. Um, so I use the vampire bat to talk about pleasure and pain. Um, the Goliath catfish, which is this monstrous um, uh, fish that lives in the Amazon. Um, and it is, like all catfish, catfish, its skin are covered in uh, taste buds or taste cells. And um, the scientist who studied catfish essentially was struck by the conservancy of taste cells on the skin of a catfish to those on his tongue, reminding him of our deep ancestry uh, and connection to fish that we, we are the result of what crawled out the water many millions of years ago in the Devonian period. So I used the, the catfish to explore our sense of taste. I used the bloodhound, of course, we know what it's going to be to explore our sense of smell. But then a moth called the giant peacock of the night to explore smells that we may not consciously register. And I investigate whether or not um, there are human pheromones. We found them in all other um, uh, families throughout the tree of life, but we've yet to find one to everyone's satisfaction in um, a, a love pheromone for humans. Um, and then I go into other more, uh, less obvious uh, secret senses they've been called by Oliver Sacks. So I use the cheetah to talk about our sense of balance and a spider called the trash line orb weaver spider, which is very ghoulish. It kind of um, it, it um, doesn't doesn't get a rid of, rid of the little carapaces of its prey. It uses them and, and weaves them into its web, so it can kind of camouflage itself within this graveyard. Anyway, I use it, this creature to explore our sense of time. 
I use the bar-tailed godwit, which is this extraordinary migratory miracle, avian miracle, to explore whether or not we have a sense of direction, another contested sense. Um, but that said, um, Joe Kirschfink at Caltech is absolutely convinced that we do and doing some really exciting science looking into this. Um, and the final chapter is the common octopus and our sense of body, our sense of proprioception. Um, and as an afterword, I couldn't resist um, a goodbye from the duck-billed platypus. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was a great overview of the book. Um, I would love to pause a little bit on a couple of chapters that I think would give us a good preview um, in order of abstraction of the senses you discussed. So mm -hmm. a personal favorite was the Goliath catfish because yes. I was completely blown away by one of the sentences um, towards the beginning of the chapter that basically reveals that the catfish his entire body is a tongue that it has taste buds all over. And I thought that was amazing. So tell me a little bit more about this animal and what it tells us about our sense of taste. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, scientists consider the catfish the iconic animal when it comes to taste, but they don't have a tongue. As you say, they are the tongue. Um, and Yella Atomer, who was working at Woods Hole um, until recently, he uh, studied the catfish and um, was struck, as I said earlier, by the fact that um, the taste cells across its flanks um, remind us of our ancestry, um, the notion that we inherited our taste system from this fish-like ancestor. Um, and I take the, the reader on a journey um, um, that essentially gets us to question this, this sense of taste that we, that we um, often don't think about. Um, I reveal the fact that, you know, flavour is predominantly smell, that taste is simply what we can sense in terms of salty, sour, bitter, sweet, um, umami. Um, and um, through, through, um, through the catfish, we learn that maybe the tongue has, um, has kind of hidden attributes that we're not quite aware of. I talk about extraceptive and intraceptive senses. I think perhaps... For me, the thing that was most interesting about that that um, chapter was the discovery that's revolutionizing the taste world at the moment. These things called solitary chemosensory cells. These are cells that look like taste cells and they're found scattered throughout our body. So this idea that they're not in taste buds, that they're, they're found singly in places like our airways and our digestive system. And so these taste cells taste but they never lead to any conscious perception of taste, but they're performing different functions. So a bitter, molu a, a bitter receptor, um, bitter taste receptor in our airway might get us to sneeze out a nasty bitter chemical, but then a sweet receptor in our digestive system apparently informs our brain to say, mm, we want more of this chocolate glue, this chocolate uh, volcano cake. So, so taste is... Um, a much more complicated and um, extraordinary story than I would have gauged um, from the before I started my research. That's wonderful. So, so insightful. And I think moving on to the vampire bats, the, the stark difference between taste, which we think we understand it, and then the ideas of pain and pleasure and thermo perception. What does the vampire bat tell us about those senses that we might not think of as often as we do? 
Yeah, so I, so I alluded to the fact that we've that science pretty much has got um, a good view on the way our fingers uh, feel the world, the kind of topography of the world, the, la- the lay of the land at our fingertips. But what's becoming apparent is our skin um, um, is full of all sorts of sensors that we're only just getting to grips with, and some of which were only being discovered in the last you know few decades. Um, I talk of this sensor relatively recently discovered that um, basically uh, fires when the object touching our skin is the same temperature as us, body temperature, um, when it's touching us in a light light way, and when it's moving across our skin at between three and five centimetres a second, which is a caress. So there is a sensor that scientists are, have found that essentially fires when we are being stroked. Um, so these sensors... Um, um, we're only just getting to grips with these. And I use the vampire bat to explore these because um, also um, David Julius, who earlier this year won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine for research that he's done into our skin, looking at how it responds to uh, temperature, um, through um, also to chilies and spices or bites from a chevron tarantula. Um, essentially, he is revealing these proteins within our skin um, called trip proteins. Um, they're a mouthful. I won't give you the full scientific uh, word for them. But essentially, um, these variants, trip protein variants, enable us to feel temperature across a sliding scale, um, some of which is comforting, but some of which is um, painful. And so I use the, the bat tells this story because... Julius also looked at the vampire bat and the nose leaf of the vampire bat um, because scientists had discovered that the vampire bat's able to detect tiny um, um, differences in temperature. And it's how the bat um, can find a vein pulsing beneath its victim's hide. Um, It does this with the nose leaf through temperature. And David Julius discovered it was through these trip proteins, the very same proteins that enable us to feel temperature. So um, so the skin it was a real revelation to me. I mean, it's been called science's last great sensory frontier. Um, you can look to the stars and wonder what's out there, and you can look to the deep ocean and wonder what's down there, but you can also look to your arm, and that skin that's covering your arm, it's got its own constellation of extraordinary sensors that we're only just beginning to understand. Well, that just gave me goosebumps, um, literally. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit about sense of time, which you also discuss in the book, which I'll admit I never thought of as being a sensorial experience. So what organ or receptor is responsible for our perception of time? So um, Russell Foster, um, years ago, um, proposed the fact that there would be another photosensor in our eye. So not a light sensor that kind of um, leads to a conscious experience of looking at the world in front of you. So not a cone and not a rod. He was convinced that there would be another light sensor in the eye that um, keys our master clock in our brain to the passing of night and day. So it basically keeps our circadian rhythm on cue with night and day. 
And so this is this is the sense of time that I'm exploring, circadian time. Um, and when when Russell proposed this idea to ophthalmologists, he was literally kind of hounded out the room. I mean, the eye was considered the most um, studied sensory organ in the body. And the notion that there could be a light sensor that scientists hadn't seen was just too much for um, scientists to contend with. But so he realised that the science he had to do to prove the existence of the sensor, which he duly did, had to be, um, he said, beyond beyond reproach, like Caesar's wife. <laughs> anyway, he um, he has since proved that this light sensor does exist, and um, and I uh, he introduced me to um, a, a, a chap called Mark Threadgold, who was. Uh, Um, in the British Army and suffered um, an accident which essentially rendered him blind. Um, But what he didn't realise is that it also rendered him time blind. Um, So not being able to see is not just, it also cuts off, um, if you can't, if his optic um, nerve was severed. And so none of the information of seeing the world would get through, but also none of the information keeping his body clock on time. So he found he was spiralling through nights and days, waking up in the middle of the night thinking it was morning, going to bed at lunchtime thinking it was it was nighttime. And it, it caused all sorts of um, terrible complications with his body because it's, it's immensely important for our body to be on time and that re- reactions, our body body's reactions are choreographed in such a way that they predict, you know, Know, when we're going to eat and all our bodies primed for food or whatever it is we are we are creatures of habit and the moment you kind of spring someone out of that temporal habit then problems start happening how did the trash line orb weaver inform this type of research so the trash so i could have chosen any creature but i couldn't resist the trash line because um studies being done at east tennessee state university had just revealed that they do not clock the normal circadian rhythm. I mean, it was assumed that most creatures are on this 24-hour body clock, but the spiders are really unusual. They have a very, a really surprising circadian rhythm. They are, they are keyed to, to night and day, but what they are showing us is that our, the assumptions we've made about this sense um, are not necessarily correct. And so they need to be studied some more to understand what, what's, what's actually going on. So out of all the senses you discuss in the book, there are 12 chapters with about 14, 15 senses, depending on how we split them. Which one would you like to experience differently or which animal would you like to inhabit to experience that sense, even for like a little while? Oh, that's such a difficult question. I'd like a best hits. I'd like a race through all of them. I mean, I've spent time with these creatures now. So I'm deeply curious about what is, and and this is this is you know talking about the senses that these creatures have, and then what their sensory experiences are. It's it's a big imaginative leap to kind of begin to inhabit their body, and I would love to inhabit every single every single body of every single creature that I've kind of got to know a little bit. I mean, just to put that in perspective, you know, the very first chapter that the um the mantis shrimp, the peacock mantis shrimp, which has 12 colour photoreceptors. Um, And it was predicted that it should be able to see a thermonuclear bomb of beauty and colour and all sorts of colours that we couldn't possibly kind of begin to imagine. Um, But when the scientists actually did the studies, they 
turns out they can't see that well. In fact, they can't see nearly as well as us. So although they have these sensors, the way that the brain kind of interlocks them and 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 this um, whatever the perception then becomes is completely different to ours. So you can make assumptions about what these creatures might be experiencing, but it's almost impossible to know. Um, but perhaps, sorry, it's a long question because I do, I'd love to get and winkle my way into every single creature's body. But perhaps of all, I'd end with a platypus because that's the afterword. Um, and I played with this notion of our own uh, experience because the platypus has a sense that we do not have. So um, as it hunts for its, um, its food, it's hiding in rivers under little rocks, it's passing its bill like a metal detector over these rocky, um, this rocky substrate. And on the bill are um, tens of thousands of electric sensors that key the creature to be being able to feel or experience or sense um, uh, the electric fields of other creatures. And that's how it finds its, its uh, food. Um, so I talk about this sense because the platypus is like a cautionary tale. We think that our experience of the world is reality. But here is a creature who has another sense that experiences um, um, a slice of the world that is beyond our ken. And so I use the platypus to kind of um, um, uproot our notion of reality and and. and, and and, and show it for what it is. It's just our notion of reality. And within our world, there are many different experiences or um, perceptions of reality um, that are completely different to ours. So I'd love to do a deep dive into every single one. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, of course. They're all irresistible. They're all irresistible. So and the more what... you know, yes, the more you know, the more you want to experience. I mean, anyway, yes. Of course. Um, So throughout the book, you don't just talk to scientists who are experts in these specific fields. You also talk to these people who kind of live in these sensorial liminal spaces who have had incredible experiences. And you've mentioned a couple of them before. How did you find them? And how did you how how did you kind of empathize with their experience in order to get to these conclusions? It's um, well, first of all, I mean, each person was immensely generous to share their particular experience with me. Um, I felt incredibly honoured. And I was introduced to them through doctors and scientists and, you know, doing doing my normal research that I do for when I was making films or documentaries, you know, just hitting the science, um, the science scholarly papers. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's as difficult to imagine, take Eshref, who, um, is a Turkish man who was born blind and he is, he's a painter, he's an artist. And he says that the way in which he uh, sees the world is through his fingertips. Um, and interestingly, when scientists at Harvard brain did a brain scan of Eshref, Um, feeling objects and drawing objects, um, they could see in in the scanner that his visual cortex was um, lighting up when he was feeling objects. So this is the part of our brain that um, essentially is activated when we're seeing. Um, So back to your gnarly question at the beginning, what is a sense? Um, What if you were to define a sense by the part of your brain 
that is dedicated to processing um, uh, the information. So if you if you do that, then Eshref is seeing because he's using his visual cortex when he's feeling the world. Um, so he can see through his fingers, as it were. Um, so yes, all these. I'm immensely grateful to everybody who shared their uh, their story, um, both the people with extraordinary um, sensorial worlds, um, and also the scientists who studied them. Um, the book very much much rests on all their shoulders. I keep imagining you as kind of Dante going through all of the senses, like ascending into abstraction. And you have your fair share of Virgils guiding you on this on this journey. You reference Desmond Morris a lot. You reference Richard Dawkins and Oliver Sacks. Um, but you also go back to Aristotle a lot and his definition of the five senses. What do you think he would think of this book and of this exploration? So... Um... So it feels a bit mealy-mouthed to say that Aristotle got it wrong because, um, of course, he was only dealing with what he could at the time. And and Aristotle, you know, dedicated his life to kind of um, understanding the big questions about what, you know, who are we? What does it mean to be human? And his inspiration was the natural world. Um, so, I mean, I... I I would hope that he would enjoy all the science that's discussed in this book. Um, you know, he's not just, um, I point out, uh, apart from the fact that, you know, the myth of the five senses uh, started with him, um, also that he called the octopus a silly creature, a stupid creature. Um, but we now know that octopuses are evidence that life on Earth has evolved minds twice over with super intelligence. I mean, the octopus has even made it onto the list of conscious creatures. Um, so I really think that um, I can imagine him being fascinated and embracing all this new science. And a, and a small part of me would, would I mean, I'd love, I'd love to pop the book under his nose and hear what he thinks of it. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of time travel is required. This book is absolutely spectacular, and we sadly cannot cover everything today. But Jackie, I'm curious, what are you working on these days? What is next? So um, I am working on another book, um, and it's, it, it follows Sentient to a certain degree in as much as it's on a subject that's integral, as integral to our experience of life as the senses. But I'm going to keep that under wraps. But the way in which I'm exploring it will be the same zoologist trick of or zoologist method trick is too cheap but zoologist method to use animals to better understand ourselves um this uh this for me is a really important message um at this moment in time um i like to celebrate our similarities rather than our differences we too often split ourselves off from the animal kingdom and so i just want to remind everybody that we are very much part of um part of the web of life on earth is there a specific date we should look forward to oh maybe i mean it takes me i'd say a good year and a half to get these things together so um but i promise to keep you posted anna i am very excited about that thank you so much jackie it was a delight to have you on this episode and your book is definitely one of my new go-to recommendations oh you're kind thank you to all of our listeners, I hope you pick up a copy of Sentient as soon as possible and allow it to change the way you perceive our reality. Thank you so much for listening.